We uh, just started recently a, a brand new series uh, in Romans, which is a, a letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to the community uh, that lived in Rome. Uh, this is really, I guess, our third uh, message, and I wanted to read the text uh, that we're going to be covering today. Uh, if you have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. But uh, by the way, I forget to mention this a lot, uh, but if you uh, are without a Bible, we have Bibles that we'd love to give to you just as a gift. Uh, and if you have a friend that you've been wanting to give a Bible to, then please take one and give that to your friend. Uh, and now, introducing, if you have a Spanish-speaking friend, we have Spanish not speaking Bibles, but Spanish Bibles um, for Spanish reading. I'm just going to read. This is uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, just imagine if you're hearing this letter read, to you, which they would have, uh, how encouraging that would have been right there. Your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, that the way may be open for me to come to you. In verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated... We'll talk about this later, but that obligated means indebted. So I am indebted or obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Talks about a complete faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's a great uh, few verses uh, that we're going to talk about today. And one of the really amazing things is... Um, it really reveals Paul's heart for this community uh, that is in Rome. So I want to pray, and then we're going to jump in and walk through that text. God, uh, you're very gracious, and we give you thanks, um, God, for your generosity towards each of us. And God, that generosity has been most clearly seen, most clearly demonstrated in your son, Jesus Christ. God, if there is anyone here today that just has questions about who you are, God, I pray you would be uh, very generous and gracious to reveal yourself to them. God, if there's anyone here uh, today that is just confused at how to understand you or how to have a relationship with you, God, I just pray that today uh, you would shed light, you would reveal yourself to them. God, if there's anyone here today that is just wounded of heart and is in desperate need of just encouragement, 
from you. God, would you bring comfort where there's some pain right now? And God, if there's any one of us, if not many of us, who are just doing our own thing, going our own way, God, I pray that uh, you would be generous to convict us of sin. And God, I pray for each of us uh, just as a community uh, that if we are just doing our own thing, going our own way, literally just living in sin, rebelling against you, I just pray that today would be a great day of turning away from that and turning towards you and literally living by faith. God, thank you so much for this letter uh, to the Romans that Paul wrote. And I'm excited to walk through this today, God. So would you please uh, just bless everything that we do and say as we open up your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As I mentioned, Paul uh, is the author of Romans. And um, last week when we walked through basically the first uh, seven uh, or so verses uh, of Romans, really highlighted They had no clue who Paul was. And so the focus of the first seven verses was, this is who I am. And he articulated pretty clearly uh, what his call was, what his mission was, and what his message was. Uh, Now keep in mind, they'd never met this man Paul before. Uh, The people in Rome had only heard of or knew about Paul just because of his reputation. So Paul, in the verses that I've just read, now... He knows, the Romans know who Paul is. As I said, his, his calling, his mission, and his message. But now, just in these short few verses, Paul wants them not to be confused about his heart for the people in Rome. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met someone who uh, they just have an incredible mind, but at some level, it's very disconnected from their heart? They're all head, no heart. That's kind of how you view them. You might be that person, uh, but do you know someone who is just, they're, they're so engaged intellectually, but they're so disengaged relationally, meaning what's happening up here, it's, it's, they know a lot, but what's happening in here, they don't have a heart necessarily for people. Conversely, have you ever met someone who they're just, a bag of emotions. They're all heart. They just feel. Every sentence starts with, I feel this, and I feel this. And you wonder if they have any feeling connected to actual any thoughts up there. What I love about Paul is he was both. He had a phenomenal mind, but he also had a phenomenal heart. And I think for you, if you are a Christian, The call is not to be some wicked, intellectually wise person who is disconnected from your heart, or vice versa, just to have, I'm all heart for Jesus, but I can't put two thoughts together about God or theology or doctrine or just how to navigate those things. Paul models that his head and his heart were synced. His theology was sound, meaning he knew how to understand and think about God rightly, and out of the outworking of right theology came right relationship of how do I relate with people. Verse 8, or chapter 1, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. First, okay, 
not like second, third, fourth, or fifth. The first thing after his introduction of uh, his call, his mission, and his message, the first thing that Paul wants to do is to say, I thank my God for you. When you think about the church and you think about people in the church, what's the first, not second, third, fourth, or fifth, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I don't want you to shout it out. But what's, because it might not be appropriate or helpful, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it typically sometimes just frustration? Oh, when I think about the church, I'm just so frustrated about who they are and who they're not and what they're doing or what they're not doing or just sense of disappointment. The first thing that comes to Paul's mind and the first thing that he wants to communicate to the Romans is, I'm thankful for you. The first thing I do is I thank my God for you. Why? Because your faith is being reported all over the world. Remember, Paul, he didn't know these people. He had never been there. He had never met these Christians who were living in Rome. So how can he be so thankful for them if he had never actually met them? He may not have known them personally, but he knew of them. And what he knew of them, he was so thankful for. One of, this is maybe a, a side note, but what this tells me, or at least reveals to me about Paul, is the fact that he was thankful that their faith was spreading and growing, and it was having an impact around the entire known world. It says to me, Uh, that Paul was not consumed necessarily with having to be the center of attention. It wasn't because of him. It wasn't because he planted the church. It wasn't because of his teachings. It wasn't because he had raised up all of these leaders where he could look back and, I'm so thankful that I was part of this and I did this. He wasn't at all consumed with having to be the reason for their faith being growing and getting known all over the world. Again, maybe this is too much of a side note, but I wrote down, if you at all desire to be a leader, and if you at all desire to be a healthy and a humble leader, you will need to learn quickly how to celebrate the successes of others rather than being filled with jealousy or discontentment because you didn't get to play a part in whatever that success may have been. Paul loved the gospel so much that whether it was a result of him being there or not being there, it didn't really matter. He was thanking God for the faith that was being reported all over the world. Two things to note about what Paul was thankful for. Notice the word all, and that just means all. It wasn't just for this person, I really like you, I've heard you say good things about me. Uh, It was for everybody. Can you imagine just, you might not know everyone in this church right now, but being able to say, I'm just thankful for every single person that's in this room right now. I'm thankful for all of you, not just a few of you that I know. I'm not at all thankful for the people who either criticize or get in your way, that type of thing. Paul is able to say, I am absolutely thankful for all of them. Hopefully a helpful question, but how do you actually grow thankful for all people, not just the people that you know in your small circle? 
How could you get to a place where you just have an attitude of, I am just thankful for all, not just the one or two that I actually know? I would just challenge you, rather than just looking at the one or two that you know, begin to ask God, would you increase what I can't see? God, I believe you're at work in this place, and I want to give thanks to all of what you're doing, not just to what I can only see uh, in front of me. I'm very personally, I'm very excited about some of the things I see God doing in individuals' lives, some unique things happening, lives getting changed. But I'm even more excited about what's happening with the all. God can have a great impact and influence with the few, but as I consider our church as a whole, I am thankful and excited about what God is doing with all of us. I alluded to this earlier, but can you imagine being the church in Rome, reading this? Our faith is being reported all over the world? What? The Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul is thankful to God for us? Can you imagine what that one sentence did for them? Do you think they blew that off? Or do you think they were just so encouraged and blessed? Like, wow, our, it's working. Our faith is growing and it's spreading and it's having an impact beyond what we even knew. And the, Paul, this is, this is Paul. He's thankful to God for us. I imagine that they got pretty fired up. And their mentality, their attitude was, let's keep pressing on to greater faith. Let's keep going. Second thing, he was thankful for their faith. Okay? He wasn't thankful that they were some pious, religious, um, you know, devout people who followed a bunch of rules and regulations and traditions. He wasn't thankful that they had you know, their piety put together. He was thankful for their faith. And just a quick definition, he was thankful that they were trusting God. He considered their community. He heard what was going on, the impact influence that the community was having. And I'm thankful that you are trusting God because it's now blessing many, many people. This week, offer you a challenge. Tell someone, if not a handful of people, go to them and say, I thank God for you. I'm thankful to God for you, for your faith, because it's having an impact. You might not know that, but I want you to know that. I just imagine the Romans were so blessed and blown away by Paul's encouraging words. So this week, would you at least take the time to to write a note, send an email, send something that would just encourage someone I thank God for you. Paul was, in 13 of his letters, all but one starts his letters by saying, I thank my God for you. He was very proactive at encouraging and inspiring and building others up. Verse 9 and 10, he goes on, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how, I constantly re- how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. This is 
I'll let you in on a little secret with prayer. You can't fake it. You can't go to someone and say, I'm praying to God for you at all times. Because that's one of those things that God will be like, really? When is that taking place? I wasn't part of that meeting. You can't fake prayer. Paul says very clearly, I thank God for all of you. God, who I serve with my entire heart, my entire being, my spirit, in preaching the gospel, God is my witness to this. So Paul is throwing down, I'm not making this up, Romans. God is my witness. I'm thankful to God for you. One of the cool things that Paul does is, um, intended or not, he teaches us a little something here about prayer. And I don't know if you've caught kind of how he described what he was doing in his prayer, but he actually laid out six things in prayer that he was doing for the church in Rome. He said constantly, meaning he's not just sporadic whenever he feels like it. He is constantly, he is constantly consistent in praying for them. It's personal. He's praying for them. I guarantee he's calling out people by name. At the end of Romans 16, when we'll get there a few years from now, he calls out about, I think it's 16 or 18 different names. So Paul is constantly consistent, it's personal, and it says at all times. I'm guessing Paul had a schedule, meaning he was probably a pretty busy guy. He had a lot going on, a lot of leadership development, a lot of churches he was planting, a lot of ministry going on. But he said, I I pray for you at all times, which tells me Paul made prayer a pretty big deal in his schedule. I don't think as he was just walking along the road, this is when the chunk of his prayer time is. I'm praying for you at all times. He was disciplined in this. Number four, in accordance with God's will. I want to come to you. I want to be with you, but in accordance with God's will. Number five, he was praying very specifically. I'm praying that the the doors will literally be open for me to come to you. So he had a specific prayer in mind as well. And the last one is he was very genuine. You couldn't help but read those few verses and just, oh, this guy had a genuine heart for this community. If you were going to accuse Paul of something, you'd probably accuse him of he genuinely loved a community of people he'd never met before. He genuinely, as God was his witness, was faithful to pray for this community. A challenge for me and hopefully for you as well is there is going to have to come a point in time in our own prayers for others where we graduate or at least grow from prayers that just sound like this. Dear God, I just pray that you would be with them. Amen. I know I said that a little bit in a mocking voice. That's an okay place to start. But after a few weeks, a few months, a few years, if that's the only prayers that are being offered up on behalf of people, I'm not sure you completely understand what God's allowing us, inviting us, and calling us to do in prayer. Charles Spurgeon said this uh, about prayer. There is a general kind of praying, 
which fails for lack of precision. It is as if a regiment of soldiers should all fire off their guns anywhere. Possibly somebody would be killed, but the majority of the enemy would be missed. As he's talking about prayer here, be precise. Hone in on what you are praying for, whether it's prayers of thanksgiving or just prayer of God's activity or God's opening doors. And I, I just love what Paul models, a consistency. It's personal. It's all times in accordance with God's will, specifically for things, and it's very, very genuine. Question. Why we learn in these few verses that Paul really wants to go to Rome. Why is Paul so bent on wanting to visit Rome? If you caught, he already said the church is flourishing. He already made clear, you guys, your faith, it's being reported like all over the place. So why is Paul, he didn't plant this church, he's never been there. Why is he bent on wanting to go to Rome? Romans 1. I love when you ask a question and then scripture just happens to answer it for you. Romans 1, 11 through 13. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So just in those uh, three verses, one of the things you're going to see just here, but just in the life of Paul, he was not an aimless guy. Paul was as intentional as intentional gets. He was very purposeful. He had a very simple but clear reason of why he wanted to go to Rome. And the answer is, why do you want to go to Rome, Paul? Because I want to build them up. I want to encourage them. I want to equip them. I want to just bless them so they just keep going. Why do you want to go to Rome? I just, I don't know. Haven't been there in a while. Just feel like kind of hanging out with people and, you know, seeing how, what gladiator is, you know, king of the, the hill. Like, I'm saying that because I feel like a lot of our, we're not very purposeful in how we talk, engage, meet with people. Well, whatever happens, happens. You know, you're meeting with that person. What are you hoping to do? Well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. Then after that time is over, well, how did it go? Well, it was fine. Anything? No, nothing significant happened. We just talked about, actually, I'm not even sure what we talked about. Like how many times have you ever walked away from meeting with someone or spending time with someone and you look back and you're like, what did I just do for the last three hours? But yet we tell ourselves, I'm just so overwhelmed, I'm so swamped, I'm so busy. We're busy with doing not much of anything. Paul was very focused. He was honed in. I want to bless you guys with a spiritual gift. Now it's unclear. He doesn't mention what the spiritual gift is but it's a very general gift of anything that he could give to them that would bless, equip, encourage, and build up the church. So I'm asking the question, if Paul is intentional, how intentional are you? When you consider your schedule this past week and the amount of time you spent with different people, 
Did you have a plan of what you were hoping to do and see God do in that time? Sometimes it's a very small window. You might only have 15 minutes. But maybe you could begin approaching that 15 minutes of, God, I want you to use me in this time to bless this person. God, I'm going to have three hours here in a conversation, whatever it might be. God, what do you want to see happen in these three hours? And that's what I want to work towards. I just love Paul. He was not aimless. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live aimlessly. I don't want to live a life where it's just completely unintentional, hoping something will happen, knowing nothing ever happens unless you intentionally plan and purpose and pray and work towards that end. Some of you might say, well, a pushback is, that's just a really tough way to live life, really intentional. It's, it's just tiring to always be kind of on point, ready to bless or encourage someone. If that's your pushback, my pushback to you would be, Try something different. That's a lame pushback. You, if that's really where you're at, you'll go through life getting to the very end and your question will be, what did I do? What did I accomplish? Your pushback might be, well, I actually don't know what I would want to give. Paul says he's got a spiritual gift that he wants to bless, encourage, equip the church in Rome with. I don't know what I would want to give to people. Or the thought might be, I don't have anything actually to give. Give what God's given you, start there. That's the best starting place. I believe God has given each of us something. Whether it's encouragement, whether it is a spiritual gift, whatever it might be, start there. Whatever God has given you, see it as a gift that's to be given to help build up or benefit or equip or give to other people. And if you're honestly thinking to myself, you know what, I really don't think I have anything to give, then my challenge to you would be sit with the giver, because he's generous. If you don't feel like you have anything to give, it's not because God's not been giving to you, it's it's because you haven't been sitting with the giver. My encouragement would be, we all have something to give. Give that. As you consider the conversations, whether it's the phone calls, the emails, the lunch meetings, the breakfast meetings, the dinner meetings, just your life at work, see it as an opportunity, a huge, massive opportunity to be a blessing, to encourage, to equip those that you are around. He was very purposeful in wanting to come. And just in case... There was someone in the community who was like, who do you think you are to come to us and you're going to bless us with your spiritual gift? I love Paul. He just, he combats that thinking right away. Just in case it were to come up, Paul says, this is mutual. I'm going to be blessed by you. I'm going to be blessed by you. So rather than approaching all of our relationships as I'm awesome, and I've got something to give. Sit down and just listen to everything I have to say. Position yourself in the place where, you know, I have something to learn from you as well. I want to be mutually edified, encouraged, built up. Let's do this together. But it took Paul being not aimless, but on point, on purpose, 
I am coming to you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift for the, to make you strong. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. We know why he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to build them up. He wanted to impart them so a gift, a spiritual gift, so they could be strong. But I want to ask the question, we know the why, but behind the why, there's always motivation. Why is he so motivated to go to Rome? They're doing fine without him. I realize he wants to go to give a gift, but what is ultimately motivating Paul to go to Rome? And again, another question is answered in the next few verses. Romans 1, 14 and 15. I am obligated. And this word obligate, if you have a different translation that you're reading right now uh, than the NIV, uh, you might see the word indebted. Paul says, I am obligated or indebted both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Non-Greeks was a term, a friendly term for barbarians. Both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That's Paul's way saying, of, of saying, I'm indebted to everybody. It doesn't matter, Greek, non-Greek, wise or fool, I am indebted to all of humanity. Verse 15, that is why I am so eager or so ready to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Paul's motivation in wanting to come to Rome was born out of this sense of, I am indebted to you. I am indebted to all of humanity, actually. When's the last time you felt indebted to someone? And as you're thinking about when the last time was, what why were you indebted to them? When we think about this idea of being indebted to someone, I'll give you an example. It's usually one, or, one of these two things. Sometimes someone gives us, literally, give an example, I'm going to let you borrow $1,000. I am indebted to that person until I pay them back. That's a reason to be indebted to someone is because they've given me something on loan or to borrow and I am indebted to them until I pay back whatever, the $1,000, whatever it may have been. Or the other one is, if a friend gives me $1,000 and says, Micah, I have $1,000, I want you to give it to Jay Monroe. I am indebted to Jay Monroe until I give him that $1,000. Which do you think Paul's indebtedness was, the first one or the second one? If we're going to take a vote, I'd hope you all raise your hand on number two. Because that's where his indebtedness came from. Something had been given to him to give to others, and until he gave it to Jay, to the people in Rome, he was indebted to them. What motivated Paul was a powerful, great sense of indebtedness. And it wasn't to God well, God did this for me, and so now I'm going to try to give back to God. No, that nullifies grace. Jesus paid my debt to God. But I have a debt to humanity because of what God has given to me to give to others. I was reading a commentary this week on this, and it said this quote from this commentator, Obligation to him who died 
produces obligation to those whom he died for. If I get that Jesus died for me in my place to pay for my sin, to cover my debt, meaning I had a tremendous debt to pay towards God and Jesus paid that all. If I get that, if I understand that, I don't, well, I can try to live life trying to pay God back, but then I clearly didn't understand what Jesus has done for me. But if I get what Jesus has done for me, that he freely did that as a gift of grace, act of grace, then I have that born out of that obligation, as this commentator says, to those whom he died for. I consider Paul, as he literally viewed every person that he met, as I am indebted to you. And that might sound like a a burdensome way to live, but yet I don't see Paul as living with this great burden. I see Paul as this great joy. When he saw people, he was thankful for them and had this obligation, the sense of being indebted to those to give to them what God had given to him. Hudson Taylor was... um, uh, one of the first uh, to head over to China uh, on mission. And uh, he just had this incredible love for China. And uh, someone had once said to him uh, that he had given his life to the Orient and loved the Chinese. And Hudson Taylor responded by saying, no, it's not because I love the Chinese, but because I loved God. But yet he did love the Chinese. But it was born, his heart was there. He gave his life to being there on mission in China. Thousands upon thousands came to faith because of his witness, his message, his call. Out of the overflow of my love for God will begin to flow in me a love for other people. Not as a way to try to pay God back for what he's done for me but out of just a sense of gratitude of I'm so thankful for what God has done for me. He's given me a gift and it's not to be kept from me, it's to be given away. If you're a Christian, you're a debtor. Jesus paid your debt, but now there's indebtedness to those that we are around. We're around a lot of people. We live with people, families, friends, roommates. We work with people, we play with people, we eat with people. I would encourage you as you go out and you're looking at people this week, I'm indebted to you. God has given me so much that until I give it to you, until I communicate it to you, until I demonstrate it to you, I'm indebted to you. Paul at the end of verse 15 just says, I'm eager and I'm ready to preach to you. You just picture he's in Corinth at the time it's the winter time. He's just like, the winter can't end soon enough because I'm just so fired up to go to Rome and preach the gospel. 25 years Paul's been doing this, and yet he is still eager to preach the gospel. How is it not getting old? How many beatings does the man have to take? How much persecution does he have to endure? How many times does he have to be left literally abandoned by those whom he thought was his friends. After 25 years of hard ministry, 
Paul still says, I think with a smile on his face, I'm so eager, I'm so ready. God, open that door and I'm running through to preach the gospel. How was it that Paul, after that long, it didn't get old and he was still so excited to preach the gospel? And I think the reason of why he didn't get old and why he was so eager, because in the gospel that changed him, transformed him, he saw something in the gospel that he'd never seen before. And Paul was a religious guy. But in the gospel of Jesus, he saw something, and it was the power of God. He'd been around God, but not seen his power. He'd studied God, but not seen a demonstration of God's power. He knew a lot about God, the traditions, but he didn't see the power. And I think why Paul was so eager and ready to preach the gospel to all people at any times, no matter where he was, no matter how long he'd been doing it, is because he knew that in the gospel was the power of God. And he says this as much in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, I read that too fast. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Just sit with that for a second. In the gospel, that's the power of God for the salvation of everyone anyone who would believe. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Many people have, um, uh, many scholars, theologians, uh, over the last 2,000 years have really agreed that this is, these are the two key verses in the whole book of Romans. These two verses, they're short in length, but they speak volumes of the gospel of God, His righteousness, and the impact His righteousness has on unrighteous people. So this, in many ways, sets up the entire theme of the book. And that theme is not so much how righteous people live. This is a big one. How do sinful people become righteous? How does the unrighteous become righteous? Because if we're ever going to have a relationship with God, if we're sinners, and we all are, how do sinners become righteous with God? And I'm going to finish with these uh, few things, but these truths come out of verse 16 and 17 that Paul reveals about the gospel of God. The first one is, the gospel is not something to be ashamed about. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the very fact that he's declaring that he's not ashamed of the gospel could lead one to believe that he's struggling with being ashamed of the gospel. Why would you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, if you're not tempted or struggling with being ashamed of the gospel? I think he said it because he was struggling at times and was tempted at times to shrink back. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Colossians, in Ephesians, those four letters right there, Paul 
is asking for the people, the churches there, will you pray for me that I would proclaim it fearlessly, clearly, and boldly? I came to you with much fear and trepidation. So he's asking these churches, please pray for me that I would not shrink back from the gospel. I take comfort in knowing that he put that there because it was a temptation for him to be ashamed. But Paul in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Ask you the question, is it that you are ashamed of the gospel, meaning ashamed to even associate yourself, your name with the name of Jesus? For some, that might be the reality. The very thought of even saying, I'm a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, that's, that's a really hard thing for you to say. And if that's you, I would ask why. What is it that you are fearful of or embarrassed by? I think that's probably only a few, actually. I think where the shame comes in is our human pride, where our human pride is not afraid to say Jesus. It's afraid to recognize and confess, I'm actually a sinner who's in need of a Savior. My Savior's name is Jesus. The shame is not in proclaiming Jesus. The shame is identifying myself as a sinner who's in need of a Savior. Because it takes a humble man, a humble woman, to identify themselves as, I'm a sinner. And without Jesus, I got nothing. I'm on the fast track to eternal torment in hell. We have a hard time saying that. I realize there will be some who just have a hard time saying, aligning your name with the name of Jesus. But I think for most, if not a lot of us, it's being humble enough to recognize that I'm a sinner who's absolutely in need of a Savior. First thing that the gospel truth that Paul reveals, not to be ashamed of the gospel. The second one is the gospel is the power of God. And I want to be clear He does not say the gospel has power, exerts power, contains power, or is powerful. Paul says, this is the power of God. Why? Because the gospel can save a man's soul. It can take someone who is absolutely hell-bent, rebellious, completely depraved, doesn't care anything about God, and the gospel can come into that man, into that woman's life, and in an instant, soften them to the point of receiving the gospel towards salvation. This is powerful, okay? If I were to go out into the street and just first person I see, I went up to them and told them, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life, was without sin. You are a sinner. But Jesus, on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, rose from the grave, thus conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. If that man or woman, whoever it was, on the spot confessed, I believe that, uttered those words, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, paid for my sin, raised from the dead, 
that person's eternal, eternal uh, destiny is changed right there. That's the power of the gospel. It can change our eternal destiny. Isn't that amazing? People are like, well, no, it's, it's not that easy. It is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of what? Everyone who works really hard, who starts going to church, who starts reading their Bible, who starts praying, who starts... No, there's no laundry list. The list is simple. Who believes? If I were to go and just to that person, I believe what you just said. The power of God at work saves that person. The last one. Wow. It's already almost noon. The last one is in verse 17, and it's a pretty amazing thing. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the third truth I want you to catch, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. This is the beauty of what sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. I don't save myself. God saves me. It's not me trying to earn my righteousness or find a righteousness or do things enough to make me righteous. God has revealed to me in the gospel, in Jesus, a righteousness that is coming from him for me. Martin Luther said this, for God does not want to save us by our own, but by an extraneous righteousness, one that does not originate in ourselves, but comes to us from beyond ourselves, which does not arise on earth, but comes from heaven. Just hopefully this will be very clear. One day, all of us are going to stand before God. One day, all of us will literally stand before God and give an account. And on that day, there will be people, and I'm guessing there will be a lot of people, there will be many people who are literally standing before God, telling God why they were righteous, the things that they did that deemed them righteous. They'll point to their acts, their actions, the things that they did which they are thinking made them righteous in God's sight. That will be one group of people, and I fear it will be a large group of people trying to present their righteousness to a righteous God. Then there will be a small, a small community of people that will not be standing, but will be kneeling before God in all humility, saying, God, thank you for providing a righteousness for me. They will be a community, a small community of people who had received the righteousness that comes from God for us. And this is what Paul is talking about in this very important verse in 17. God has declared you and I righteous if we are to receive that and believe that through faith. I'm not becoming righteous 
At that moment, God declares me righteous. There's a difference. I don't stand before God and say, I'm righteous. I stand before God, kneeling before God. You declared me righteous, and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, I think Paul makes it pretty clear here. This righteousness from God comes through faith, okay? A righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I just can't stress how much this is the beauty of the good news of the gospel. We receive it, we reject it. We believe it and don't tack anything else onto it. It's not my belief plus a bunch of other long list of things I need to do. I need to receive it by God's grace and believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. If you believe Jesus Christ is God's son, savior, all those things that I've been talking about, then you have been declared righteous. I don't stand before God saying, I'm righteous. I stand humbly before God, clothed in the righteousness that he has provided for me. Last quote I'll give you is from Jonathan Edwards on this very verse. If there be ground for you to trust in your own righteousness, then all that Christ did to purchase salvation And all that God did to prepare the way for it is in vain. If there's anything in you and me that thinks that I can get a righteousness of my own apart from Jesus, you're wrong. Paul makes it very clear. God has revealed his righteousness to us in the gospel of Jesus. And those who receive it and believe in it are declared righteous by God. And then he gives the great quote from uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, the righteous will live by faith. I want to spend some time uh, giving you the opportunity, actually, uh, just to pray. This is a great uh, few verses that we've walked through. And one of my convictions is I believe that God's word speaks uh, to our heart and soul. And I want to give you the opportunity to respond to what God has been speaking to you today. But Paul puts before us in this last two verses a choice. Will I find a righteousness of my own? Or will I receive the righteousness that God has revealed to me through the gospel of Jesus? If you have never, if you're at all thinking that you can somehow be good enough to earn it, merit, become righteous. Please die to that thought today. Stop. Don't try to waste another moment trying to earn it before God. Open wide your mind, your hands, your heart, and receive from God a righteousness that's been revealed in the gospel where God declares you and I righteous before him. If you've never done that, believe. That's it. Believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, is the Savior, is the Redeemer. It's His righteousness that brings us peace with God.
And if you've already made that decision, this is resonating with you and you're thinking in your heart, amen, I believe it, I'm there. Then I want you to come and celebrate communion. And with much thankfulness and gratitude in your heart, give thanks to the God who revealed his righteousness from heaven in the gospel, in his son, that we have peace with God, our sins are forgiven. Father God, I give you thanks. God, I give you thanks that you save us in so many ways. God, I give thanks that your salvation is complete. God, I give thanks that humanity does not have to be, none of us have to be confused as to how to be right with you. God, I give thanks that you've saved us from trying to live a life of trying to earn it, be good enough, do good enough things to find or merit our own righteousness. God, if there is anyone who's believing that, I pray they die to that today. And God, much like what you did in Martin Luther's heart nearly 500 years ago when he read these verses in Romans 1, 16 and 17, his heart was set free from trying to merit and earn a righteousness on his own. And he received a righteousness that came through the gospel. God, please, if there is anyone who does not or has not received your righteousness in the gospel, I pray that their prayer would be so simple of I believe, of I believe that Jesus, you are enough. And put their trust, their belief in the righteousness of Jesus. God, for those who are here today and uh, have made that confession, God, let our hearts be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude towards you for what you've done for unrighteous people to make us righteous with you.